Thank you for being here today. It's good to see each of you. I hope you brought your Bible. I want you to turn to two places, if you would. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 first, uh, 2 Corinthians 10, and then uh, locate John chapter 1. And we will look in that order, and we'll look at some other verses too, but 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and then John chapter 1. Most of you know that I'm a, a sentimental soul. And because of that, the anniversary dates are very meaningful to me when I see those times. And fortunately, I have a good memory somewhat. It's, it's waning a little bit. But uh, when those times come up, I think of that people. And that's what they're about, really, when I go by certain places or certain buildings and times in my life. This past August... And it wasn't just on the day, it was uh, really all month. Uh, I thought about a special occasion in my life on August the 7th, 1977. It was a Sunday night, and I surrendered publicly to to preach the gospel. Uh, It didn't happen that night. In fact, it had happened for uh, a time before that, but it was really just when I told the church at large that. But it was a struggle for me. Some of you have heard me share about that. It was a struggle not because I was necessarily running from God, but because of insecurity. I had a lot of fear. Those of you that uh, are introverts, you will understand that. Uh, Being in front of people and being with people was not in my comfort zone. I had to learn how to do that. I really did. One of the books that really helped me with that was uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now, uh, when I read that, it wasn't from a manipulative standpoint, you know, so I could sell things. I, I've never been a salesman because if I did, I, I would fail. But I read it to how, how can you engage with people? Remember when I picked that book in a bookstore, I thought, well, you know, I, I, need, I need to learn how to do this. And I began to skim through it, which I do a lot of times. And if I see two or three things and that'll help me, I'll pick it up. In fact, I think if you get one big idea from a book that'll change your life, it's worth the price. Well, I saw several things in there that would help me. So I picked it up, and God used that book to, to help me. I don't know if the man that wrote it, Dale Carnegie, was a Christian or not. But a lot of those principles in that book are based uh, on Scripture about uh, living for other people and focusing on those things, and were really already the desire of my heart. But he gave some practice in there on, on how to do that. I can remember going through that, and I thought, well, I can do that. I can do that. I won't, I won't tell you those things. But even to this day, after all those years, I began to practice those matters. But I surrendered publicly that night in August the 7th, 43 years ago, a couple of months ago. And so one of the uh, advantages of being uh, a quieter person in the ministry and, and preaching and so forth is you, you are not apt to imitate other preachers because it's, it's not in your wheelhouse. Now, I'm not saying that uh, people that are quieter don't, don't do that, but it, because it's a struggle just to, to do it at all. And so you tend to, you tend to do that out of weakness, 
And so most of the time, who you are is, is what you see in the pulpit. And I trust that's, that's true with me. As if you see me back there, it's the same guy right here. And I think sometimes as Christians, whether we're preachers or, or just in our service for God, we look at other people and we wish to be them, maybe not with their setting and their background, but we wish for their strengths. You know, I wish I could sing like that, or I wish I had their personality. I wish I had their gift. But we, we think God can't use me the way that I am. But I want you to understand something. Listen, listen carefully. God blesses sincerity. Did you know that? The Bible says in, in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit blesses truth. He is called the Spirit of truth. And He blesses the truth. Now, part of that, in fact, the basic thrust of that is that He blesses the preaching of the truth. When the Word of truth is preached, the Spirit of truth blesses the truth. But I think there is also an application where He blesses the truth in your life. That when you are when you are true, that when you're genuine, when you're sincere, I've taught you that means without wax and how they would cover up the cracks in the pottery with wax and the heat would melt it away. And uh, man, sometimes you got out of cracks and you know the pottery sold as it is; it doesn't have any wax in it. But that's who you are. But when 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 you are genuinely who you are, and um, your weakness. God says, I'm going to bless that. Don't you like people like that? I do. I like to be around people. And it's almost like you can sense immediately that, hey, this person's real. Uh, They're not putting on airs. They're not trying to be something that they're not. And I want to talk to you uh, this morning again about how to reach people for Jesus. And I want to talk to you about this aspect of being a Christian, about how that God can use you just the way that you are. You know, when we try to be someone else, or, or we yearn for to be someone else, and so we think, well, because I don't have that gift, God can't use me, then we're thinking foolishly, or we behave foolishly, because that's not true. When God called Gideon, he was the least of the least of the tribes. And Gideon resisted that. He said, God, you've got the wrong man. When God called David, David was the least one. He was out in the field. His brothers, his dad sent him out there. He said, well, God wouldn't call David. Moses stuttered. I, I could go on and on and on and, and talk about these, these Bible characters. It's, it's the theme of the Bible. The disciples, the early disciples that Jesus chose, they were not sophisticated in fact, it appears, it appears the most sophisticated one was Judas. You say, well, preacher, why do you believe that? Because he was the treasurer. He had some, some um, skill to him, some, some ability to be able to um, mathematically do some things. The other guys were fishermen. They, they were common laborers, as it were. It doesn't mean God can't bless sophisticated people or... Are, are brilliant people. Thank God he does, but there's not many. First Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26 says that, that God doesn't choose many people like that. It doesn't say any. 
but he doesn't choose many. And here's why. Because they're self-sufficient. They don't respond to God's call. They think, well, I don't need God. I'm a self-made man. Nobody's self-made. You want to make some oxygen. You want to recover yourself from cancer. Are you self-made? You're not self-made. Nobody's self-made. You need the Lord. And it's foolish for us to try to be someone else or to think that God can't use us because of the way that we are. Now, I told you to open your Bible there to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And many of you have headings in your Bible there at the top of chapter 10. Uh, It talks about Paul defending his apostleship. And really, it was his authority, his leadership. The Corinthians were questioning his leadership. And part of it, when you read the chapter there, it's very interesting. It was based on on two things, his appearance and his speaking ability. Now, for some of us, and including me, that gives me a lot of encouragement. In fact, Paul said this. He said, you say my letters, that means the letters he was writing to the churches, that they are weighty. Those are heavy. Paul can write, but when he speaks, he's weak. He's not the best speaker, and he, he, he doesn't look very good. Many Bible scholars believe that Paul had an eye disease because in that part of the world... People were, they had a lot of sand and so forth. It was a common eye ailment called ophthalmalia. I believe that was what it was called. And it could disfigure your eyes and thus your face. In the book of Galatians, and two times there, uh, Paul said, you, you love me so much. He said that you would have given me your eyes. And that's an odd thing to say, isn't it? But he said that about them. He said, you love me. You love me so much, you would have given me your eyes. That implies that, that he had trouble with his eyes. And then at the very end of the book, in Galatians 6, 11, I think it is, he said, you see how large a letter I have written. Now, Galatians is only six chapters. In fact, you can read it in, in 20 minutes. It's not a long letter at all. And the words there have this idea of, uh, it has to do when, when he would sign off many times with his own name. But I believe he wrote the whole letter. And he had to write in, in large script because he couldn't see well. And so they were making fun of him. And they said, you know, Paul, you want him to be a leader. He, he doesn't even. He doesn't look like the people in the magazine. He's not a fashion model. He's not a good leader. And you young people, in fact, all of us, be careful about letting the world put you in its mold about not only who God can use, about what true leadership is. In the Bible, the Bible says that true leadership is servant leadership. It's not top down. It's it's on the bottom. It's helping people in the shadows. It's doing things for people and, and you don't get credit for it. That's what true leadership is. And sometimes you're at the top, but you fulfill your responsibilities whether you get credit for it or not. Now I want you to notice what Paul said in that context when he was being questioned about um, his leadership by this crowd. And he talks about their attitude and what they were thinking and saying. Chapter 10 of Second Corinthians, look at verse 12. And he corrects their thinking here. Watch this. 
He says, for we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. Because he says, here's your problem. You're commending yourself. You're full of pride. Don't, don't compare yourself with a fool or with an arrogant man. That later, he says, don't compare yourself with people at all. But they, and here's the problem. Here's what I want you to see, church. They measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You see that? Now, what's the opposite of, of being wise? It's being a fool. That's, that's the Word of God. When you measure yourself by other people, you compare yourself with other people, you're going to behave foolishly and you're thinking like a fool. That's what God says. You see, the Bible says your standard is never people. In God's economy, His blessing is not determined by your skill level, but by your surrender. God can do a lot with someone that just says, God, I, I, I give you, as a little boy in John 6, one of my favorite stories in the Bible, he just, he just gave Jesus what he had. He had five biscuits and two sardines. And it fed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. God multiplied the little of what that little boy had. And it's a lesson for us. My favorite part in that story is in John chapter 6, and it's in verse 9 or 10. It said, and Jesus took the loaves. Uh, those loaves were insignificant until they were put in Jesus' hands. And that's the secret. It's surrender. You give your little to Jesus, and then He multiplies it. So, so stop trying to be like someone. Stop trying to think that you have to be like someone, whether it's in the pulpit or in a Sunday school class or to be used of God, period. Now, the same thing, because we're talking about reaching other people for Jesus, is true of evangelism. Many of you are not effective or you don't try at all in evangelism because you think you have to be like someone else. Especially, especially if you're an introvert. You think you have to be outgoing. God's going, you will win people that someone else will never win. Those of you that are outgoing and fun and expressive, you will win people that an introvert will never win. Because it's the gospel. It's not, it's not about your personality. But you will connect with people because of your interest and, and your stories will intersect. We'll talk about that in just a moment. So the issue isn't your personality. The issue isn't your training. Your is, the issue isn't necessarily your, your knowledge of the Bible. Your issue is have, have you given it to God? Now, here's the big idea I want to give you, and then we're going to hang some things on it. God uses different ways and different personalities to bring people to Christ. As you read through the Bible, I want you to kind of look for that idea. I could develop it, but that's not the purpose of the message to, to give illustrations. It will encourage you. It does me. I, I'm so attracted to that. When I go through my eyes, like a magnet go to that, because that's who I am. I'm a simple person. So, God, you use him. You can use me. And, and it encourages me. Elton Trueblood, who was a, a great thought leader in his time, he had some wonderful quotes. Listen to what he said about this matter of, of evangelism. 
He said this, he said, evangelism is not a professional job for a few trained men, but is instead the unrelenting responsibility of every person belongs to the company of Jesus. It's the unrelenting responsibility of every person who belongs to the company of Jesus. It's not just for the pastors. It's not for those that have been to seminary and Bible college. It's not for those that have been Christians for 20 years or 10 years or 5 years. It is the responsibility of everyone that is in the company of Jesus. Now, turn to John chapter 1, and I'm going to show you this where it's illustrated so well for us in a story about John the Baptist. And we see a chain of events here as he preaches and he gives the gospel. In John chapter 1, notice in verse 29, uh, John the Baptist is introducing Jesus. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He uh, paved the way for him. He was Jesus' cousin, as you know. John one twenty nine. The next day John, that is John the Baptist, seeth Jesus coming unto him, and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now what is he doing? He's, he's identifying Christ as the Messiah. And he's saying, this is, our, this is our sin substitute. You folks are sacrificing lambs. This is the Lamb of God. He will end all of the sacrifices. All of the sacrifices are pointing to Him. And He is the Lamb of God. And I like this. Notice this prepositional phrase. For the world. He died for everyone. Don't don't you ever let anyone tell you that Jesus died for just a few. No. Jesus died for the world. And that's in the Word of God. Very, very clearly stated in, in other places. The Lamb of God, which taketh... Look at this. He taketh away the sin of the world. That's the gospel. He was a substitute. He's your substitute. And so here is John the Baptist preaching the gospel, which is, which is not principles. It's about a person, the Lord Jesus. Well, John had disciples. Now, they weren't disciples of John. They were disciples of his message. And remember, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He says, now, one is coming after me that is greater than me. You remember that. And he was pointing them to Christ. And here he identifies him finally. Move up to John chapter 1 and verse 35, if you would. And here we, we meet some of his disciples. John 1, 35. Again, the next day after John stood, this is the day after, and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now, we don't know if they were there the first day, if they heard the gospel more than once, or that John gave it more than once, but they heard the gospel. Now, they they knew Jesus was coming, but this was the fulfillment of the gospel. And so here's John. He said, this is the one that I've been speaking of. This is the fulfillment of of the gospel. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he identifies who who these people are, at least one of them, and gives a hint who the other is. Verse 38. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? 
they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day. Notice that, for it was about the tenth hour or, or late in the evening, uh, just before sundown. They spent the day with Jesus. And uh, isn't, that, isn't that important? That he didn't just say, okay, you need to, and you can get saved in a moment. But he spent the day, he said, what are you, what are you guys after? He said, come and see. He spent time with them. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now, there were two, and it just identifies one, Andrew. And the other one, I believe, was John, who wrote this book. John the Apostle, John the Disciple, Jesus, the one whom Jesus loved. And the reason I believe that is sometimes that he puts himself in in, in the third person like that. That he was the other disciple. So here was John and Andrew, and this was their conversion experience. Now I want you to notice in verse 40 there, look at the last line. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now every time, not every time, but most of the time that you read in the Bible and you find Andrew, this is what it says. Uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Andrew, the brother of Simon, almost all the time. He was kind of the third wheel. He was always second. I mean, Peter was the guy, he was the guy that was the leader. He was the guy that everybody knew. He was flamboyant. He had the personality. He would have written the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Andrew was the introvert. Now, that's important. Andrew was a quiet guy. Oh, you know Andrew, don't you? No, I don't think I don't. I don't know him. He he he's Simon Peter's. Bro. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I know him. I know him now. You only knew Andrew because he was associated with Peter. You wouldn't know him on his own merits because he he was kind of vanilla. He he fit into the background. Now I want you to notice after Andrew got saved, his first inclination. Look at verse forty-one. He, that is Andrew, first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. So they've been talking about this, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. You see that? And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. The word Simon there means, means pebble, a little tiny rock that you could put in your very small thou shalt be called cephas which is an aramaic term which means a foundation stone which is by interpretation a stone has to do with a big stone like this stage he said right now right now you're you're just a pebble but but one day you'll be a stone now the roman catholics have have taken this passage and said that he was the foundation for the church well jesus is the foundation for the church that's not what he's saying Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Pete, I'm going to use you. In fact, you've underlined this because I've taught it to you. He said, when Jesus said, thou art and thou shalt be. This is what you are now, but thou shalt be. I was reading through my mom's Bible recently, and I saw that she had underlined that. So many things that I preached through the years where she had done that. 
But look at it, verse 41. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith to him, We have found the Messiah. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus changed Peter's life. No Andrew, no Simon Peter. No introvert, no leader. And notice who he went to. Remember I taught you last week on start where you are. Start where you are. He went to to the person that he had been speaking to about this. And he went to, to the person that was closest to him. And then the next day, these three were traveling. Verse 43, the day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip. So here's another disciple. And saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip, this is interesting, was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Philip. Now the Bible doesn't say, but because they were of the same city, it implies at least that they were friends of Andrew and Peter. Could it be, and I'm positing here, but could it be that they said, Hey, we have a friend in that city, and, and I would like to go talk to him. Now the Bible doesn't say that. But, but it does imply that somewhat. And so he becomes a Christian, if you will. He hears the gospel, accepts Christ as his Savior, as his Messiah. And then notice in verse 45. And then Philip, now Philip's converted, he findeth Nathaniel. He goes to his friend. And saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, here's what I'm trying to get you to see of the seeds of the simplicity of God's plan to win the world for Christ. This is so easy. You don't have to have a campaign in a church. You don't have to have radio. You don't, you don't need to spend... Millions and billions of dollars of radio campaigns to motivate people. But we have to because of what I taught you before, because of the lack of motivation. But even that doesn't last because only the love of Christ can do that. But when you love Jesus, listen, you're, you're going to start where you're at. And then you keep going and then... And then you go, and then when you go on the mission field, and Brother Tim could talk to you about this. It's the same principle. You move in, and you you make friends, and you get to know people. And you're a stranger when you move there first, just like when you move into a new neighborhood, or, or your son plays on the team for the first time, and you're meeting people for the first time. That's why it's important that Christians uh, learn how to make friends and are friendly people. And I'll be honest with you, this is not a, a message on temperance, uh, temperaments this morning. But I do think sometimes it's easier for, for introverts to make friends than extroverts. You know, one of the principles of introverts is they have fewer friendships, but they're deeper. Extroverts have more friendships, but they're not as deep. Not always, but typically. Because a lot of times, extroverts, they just enjoy the crowd. And so, hey, it's good to see you. Oh, hold on. Hey, it's good to see you. Oh, it's nice to see you. And they flit from subject to subject. An introvert will talk to somebody for 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or the whole hour. They'll drill down deep. They'll really get to know them. Now, I'm not saying 
it's good, better, and best. But here's what I am saying. God will use you where you're at to win who you ought to win. So don't be disparaged because you don't have the personality or strength of another person. Don't do that. Well, I'm not high-powered like they are. That's okay. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. Nobody knew who he was. But he brought him to Christ and brought forth a chain early on that they began to build the disciples and the disciples helped reach the world. We've made it so difficult and it's so simple. Someone said evangelism is simply those who know telling those who don't know. I like that. Evangelism is those who know Christ telling those who don't know Christ. Period. That's what it is. Now, the consequences of us not doing this and our failure are heavy. One consequence, obviously, is the eternality of hell. There is a hell. And it has fire. And your loved ones and your friends and even strangers that you meet that God gives you an opportunity to talk to, they go to hell. I talked to you about this last week. I showed you the headstone of my my friend in high school. And I remember I closed out the service spontaneously. I didn't have this in my notes. But I, I said, this is real. And I meant that. This is real. This is real. There's more I want to say about that, but time doesn't allow me. It's real. Another consequence is that churches become weak, they diminish, and they cease to exist. Because God uses the church to equip His saints, but part of the equipping is to reproduce. Not just to be a safe house, to protect ourselves from the world. It is to be a holy place, and a happy place. But it's also to be a place to... It's, where you, it's a huddle where you call the play, but you go out during the week and you run the play. If you don't run the play, we failed. I failed. You failed. And this morning, we're, we're talking about, we're calling the play. What are we supposed to do? This is a script. This is what God has told us to do. And this is every, every Sunday is different. Sometimes they're similar, but they're different. And another consequence is that our nation is going to grow more secular and humanistic philosophy. Humanism is, is a worldview that leaves God out. Now, humanism sounds like it's good. Well, that person's humanistic. Well, that means that they, they're very compassionate with humans. That's not what it means. There's a humanistic manifesto one and a humanism Manifesto 2, you can read about those. And the whole idea is to leave God, and, and it's been very successful. We have political worldviews that are humanistic, educational worldviews that are humanistic. And may I say this, that, that some of you have humanistic worldviews that have been sown into you, and, and you aren't aware of it. Eric and I were talking about this earlier, not about the humanism, but how that you can have thoughts sown in you that become a part of your fabric. And you don't even know that they're there until you're confronted with the truth in the Word of God. Leonard Ravenhill said this, listen to this, America is not dying because of the strength of humanism. 
America is dying because of the weakness of evangelism. That is a powerful statement. Now, I, I believe that from the core of my being. That's why I, I don't preach a whole lot on the sins of America. First Peter chapter 4 says that judgment begins at the house of God. Second Chronicles chapter 7 says, If my people which are called by my name, and, and then he gives four things about the church, our pride, our, our prayerlessness, our toleration of wickedness. And then he, he comes and God says, I, I will heal your land. So the problem is not in the White House and in the Supreme Court and in the houses of Congress. The problem the problem's in the church house. You do realize that the candidates that we have running for president, well, all the flaws are a reflection of the people of America. You do realize that. That's who we are as a nation. So America's not dying because of the strength of humanism, but because of the weakness of evangelism. And the only way you turn this ship around, and I voted, Paul and I have already voted, and you ought to vote. You ought to vote for the person that aligns with biblical values. But that's not going to save our country. Do you understand this? Do you understand this? It comes when you win people to Christ and you disciple them. And that not only changes their vote, it changes who they are. And when you win these politicians to Christ, it changes who they are. And some of these people will go in they'll become... These people, and they have Christian worldviews. They have biblical worldviews. They have different hearts. So people fail to win people to Christ because they believe many times that God cannot use them because of their limitations. But God can use different ways and different personalities to bring people to Christ. Listen, if God can use me, in some way, He can use anybody here. I mean that. If God can use me, He can use anybody here. When I was in the fifth grade, dear Mrs. Brumbelow, my mother worked at the school at Terry Heights there. My mom didn't tell me this. So I was in my late 20s. I was so introverted. That she came to my mom. She was concerned about me. And she said, I think you need to take Rick to see a psychiatrist. He is so quiet. Just a few months ago, Paula came to me and said, you need to see a psychiatrist. Some things have not changed in these 60 years. I'll shut up, Tim. If you'll go with me, you go with me. We'll give that, that guy a way to find one. That would be an interesting appointment right there. Wise guy. <laughs> now, let me, let me give you one, one big idea today on what you need to do. And I'm excited about this. I had more, but I thought about Andrew back there moving these slides real fast. And I said, have compassion on him. I'm going to do that today. But th- this will help you. And I, I want to, to give you something that will help us reach people. Here it is. Tell your story. Tell your story. Tell your story of grace. Besides the gospel, because that's what changes the life, but besides the gospel, the most most powerful weapon that you have and your repertoire to win people to Christ 
is your story of your conversion. Paul was saved in Acts chapter 9. And on a couple of other occasions, I think it's Acts 22 and Acts 26, he gave his testimony. He shared with these people how that he came to Christ and how that he was converted. Are you sharing your story of grace? Have you ever shared your story? People love stories. They especially love personal stories. Real stories. I was um, preaching up in another state and a pastor sat down with me after it was over. The pastor that that was holding the, uh, sponsoring the meeting, it was a men's conference. And it was late at late, about 1030 at night. And we had been milling around, talking to some of the guys that we were sitting down. And the pastor came over and, and he sat down by me. And he had kind of a puzzled look on his face. He said, have you ever seen a psychiatrist? No, that's not what he said. He said, he said, I want to ask you a question. He said, when you, when, you, when you speak, when you preach, my men listen to you. But they don't listen as well to me. What's the difference? You've heard me speak before. What's the difference? And he was pleading for some help. And I said, he said, I think I know what it is. He said, it's because you tell stories. Now, isn't that interesting that he pulled that out of the hat? He said, you tell stories. And I do tell stories. This man had had been to the leading seminary in the world. If I mentioned it, you would know where it is. And those of you that are familiar, you say, yeah, that's it. That's the leading seminary in the world. And he had won their preaching award. He won the preaching award. And sad to say, many seminaries teach that you do not use stories. They don't study the life of Jesus much. But they said, don't use, as he preached, but don't use stories. Stories are powerful. Sometimes when we have guest speakers, and I'll be sitting over here at this angle all through these years, and people kind of be, you know, a little bit engaged with the message, and they'll have their Bible open, they'll look down, they'll look up, kind of like you're doing now, you know, I'm just kidding. They're, they're kind of there in, in the land of Nod, and they're kind of going on. And then the speaker will say, uh, let me tell you a story. Or may he may not use that phrase. He'll just start telling a personal experience. There is a noticeable difference in the room. People sit up straight. Their, their head comes up. And I watch it over here. And then after one time, I, I noticed the difference in my peripheral vision. When they did that, I started kind of glancing over just to watch it. Just to kind of my personal experience. And I thought, wow, this, this is amazing. It's amazing how people, how they change. And I'd already been using stories, but I realized that maybe this is what happens in a person's soul. Not just in their mind, but in their soul, which is a part of your soul. When we tell stories. So you know what what I've been doing, and I've done it all through the years, but even now as a father... 
to my, my adult children, I tell them stories. See, a principle is good, but a story illustrating the principle is better. I sat up here one time with a staff member. I hit him on the leg, off towards me, played, and they were going to sing. I said, tell you what, I said, they're going to like the, they're going to like the sermon this morning. He said, why? I said, because I have a lot of stories. He laughed, but that's what happens. Now, I'm so sorry I don't have a lot of stories this morning. But people love your story. When uh, a new product comes out and you watch about it on television, they have a commercial. And they'll have uh, people that have used that product, sometimes celebrities or somebody else. And basically, they're a satisfied customer and they tell their story. They put their stamp of approval. When a new book comes out on the dust jacket, when you open up, uh, you have a list of people on the inside that have read that book. And they give a summary of of, of what it meant to them to read, not of the book, but of, of how much it helped them. And sometimes on other reviews. And they're saying, I am a satisfied customer reading this book. My question for you is, is have you ever shared your story have you ever shared your, your journey of grace, how you came to know the Lord Jesus? Have you ever recorded it? Have you ever sat down and written it in great detail about how you came to know Christ as your Savior? And maybe you have, but you haven't done it in a long time. I, I was praying about this this morning again. and <coughs> Excuse me. And I was thinking about how in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 5, when Jesus addressed the church of Ephesus, said, I lost her first love. That the prescription for them to go back to the first love, the first word he used was remember. Remember. And you know, one of the, one of the blessings of, of going back to your story is, is it rekindles your love for Christ. I love to go down to West Huntsville Baptist Church and walk into the auditorium by myself. And I sit down in the pew the night that, on February the 11th, 1968, where me and my mom were sitting with my brother and sister when they were distributing the Lord's Supper. You say, well, where's your daddy? He was helping with the elements. And... Uh, I had always wanted to do that. And I thought, well, I'm going to do that tonight. And they passed it by, so I reached out, and she took my hand and put it down. And I watched it go by. I said, well, there it goes. And I looked up at Mom. I was nine years old. I said, I want to do that. And she said, you can't do that. I said, why? She said, because you're not a Christian. And she spoke the truth to a nine-year-old boy. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was lost. You see, even though that I, you see, right now, everybody in here is paying attention to me. Everybody. You're looking up at me while I go. Some of you are kind of looking, you're everybody, you're, you're listening to the story. It'll happen for you. Because up until that time, because we went to church every time the doors were open, I had grown up in church. I thought that I was a Christian because. We went to church all the time because my mom and dad were Christians. For the first time in my life, I knew that I was lost. We got home and 
I said, I, I want to become a Christian. I, and I don't understand all this, but for whatever reason, at that time in our church, we weren't equipped to win people to Christ. So the way that you got saved is the preacher preached them down the aisle. I'm not saying that it was a bad church at all. Later on, more people were equipped to do that. But I, Dad told me what to do. He said, next Sunday, you're going to get saved. And for a week, I was under conviction. I was miserable. I wanted to get saved so bad. And so the next Sunday morning, I moved from the right side of the auditorium as you face the pulpit to the left side. And I sat with my mom and dad again. And I got on the left side of the pew of that one-third back. And when the first note on the piano hit for the invitation, my dad told me, he said, when you go down there, ask for Wayne. That was his best friend. Two weeks ago, they had their, their 60th wedding anniversary, and I went there to that, hugged his neck. I told him, I said, thank you so much for helping me come to Jesus. And I went down there and took his hand. Actually, another man, Roy Duncan, greeted me. And I said, I want to talk to Wayne. He got Wayne. And I knew Wayne well. He knew me. He said, Rick, what's going on? I said, I want to be saved. And he opened his Bible and he went through the gospel with me. And he said, do you, after, do you understand this? I said, yes, sir. I understood it before then, but I didn't know I needed it. I said, yes, sir. He said, let's pray. He said, now, if you want to be saved, I'm going to, I'm going to lead you in prayer. And you repeat after me. And he said, dear Jesus, I didn't say anything. He said, you just pray after me, Rick. He said, dear Jesus, remember I was introverted? I hope all of y'all listen to this. People are different. Don't, don't force your personality on somebody else. He said, dear Jesus, and then he said this, and I thanked him for this two weeks ago. I said, thank you for your wisdom. He said, Rick, if you don't want to pray out loud, just pray it in your heart. And I remember this. I did. He said, dear Jesus, inside I said, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm a sinner and so forth. And I got saved on February the 18th, 1968. And God changed my life. My life was transformed. As much as a little nine-year-old boy's life could be transformed. I was different. I was brand new on the inside. And I'm so grateful for that day. And when you review your testimony, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 2, 4, and 5, when you, when you drifted from God, you've lost your first love. Remember. Remember. But you, you need to go back and do that. Here's what John Newton said when he gave his testimony. Look at this. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that good? That's his testimony. That's a good testimony. Remember the maniac of Gadara? I remember when we were in Israel and we were there and, and Eli said, he said, now here, here's where Gadara was. Here's where the cities. And this is approximately right here where the maniac of Gadara was. That was so fascinating to me. And how that he would cry out, he was possessed by a demon, how he would cut himself with stones. 
And he would cry out. The Bible says always at night in the day. And I imagine little boys and girls wouldn't go up in that area. They were scared and frightened because of the crying and the howling at night. And Jesus cast the demon out. And the Bible says that this man was in his right mind, clothed finally, and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And he had been saved. And, and the people in town began to talk. Have you seen the maniac? He's different. And then at the end of the story in Mark chapter eighteen or 5, verse 18, here's what it says. And when he, the maniac, was coming to the ship, because Jesus was leaving, he that had been possessed with the devil prayed or requested Jesus that he might be with him. Howbeit Jesus suffered or permitted him not, but saith unto him, Now here, watch this. Isn't this interesting? Not, not just go be a witness. Go home to your friends. He said, start where you are. Go back home, go to your family, and go to your friends. Go home to your friends. And, and look at the simplicity. You can do this, church. And tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Can you do that? Can you tell them how good God has been to you after you got saved? How He provided for you? How He changed you? How He washed your, your sins in the blood of Christ and cleansed you from a guilty conscience? And hath had compassion on you? And the man departed and began to publish and to capitalize how great things Jesus had done for him. And all men did marvel. He did what Jesus said. He gave his testimony. Tell your story of grace. Everybody here ought to give their testimony. And I want to challenge you that this week that you would take three pieces of paper and this is, this is how you write your testimony. Okay, at the top of one piece of paper, what you do, write what I was like before I came to Christ. And just think about these things and write, fill it out. Just start writing. And you can be as frank as you want to be. Now, now you don't need to tell people in detail. You may want to go to the root sin. In fact, it's better because it, people can identify with that better. Rebellion. You know, can cause things rather than the act. I did some things. I disappointed my parents. I broke their hearts. You know. And just just write this out. What I was like before I was saved. And, and just spend some time on this. And then on the second piece of paper is how I got saved. How I came to Christ. There's a place. There's a person. Maybe... You were by yourself when you got saved, but somebody helped you get there. I talk about my mom. There was a red chair where you knelt. Maybe it was out in a clearing in some trees. Maybe it was at an altar at a church. But how you came to Christ, and put, put, put the details in here. And then on the third piece of paper is the change that Christ made in your life. And fill out these three pages and take some time with it. And then after you get three pages, then, get, then collate your idea. You say, well, hold on, this is going to take some time. Yes, it will. But it will refire your soul. 
and, and then create not a speech, but a story, a narrative. And you want two versions, okay? You, you want a version that when somebody has some time, before, before I was preaching, people would say, give your testimony. Well, I got saved when I was nine. I wasn't a drug dealer. Sometimes I was intimidated by people that had a real testimony. But you need to tell your testimony. Maybe you were a church kid, but still you have a testimony. Some of you have dramatic testimonies. doesn't matter. So you, you want a, a full testimony, and then you want an elevator pitch testimony. That's a business idea where when you get on the elevator, somebody says, well, what do you do? Maybe if you're pitching something, that from the first floor to the fourth floor, you can, you can give it in about 30 seconds. And uh, that's the idea. It's a brief time. It may not be 30 seconds, maybe a two-minute or a three-minute version. You go somewhere, and somebody says, hey, can you give your testimony? Well, you don't have 20 minutes, but you can give it in three minutes. But you follow that narrative, what I was like before, how I came to Christ, and the changes made in my life. And take some time and do that. Now, we had Sumner Wimp years ago who was a tremendous soul winner and, and just a great man. And uh, he said, you know, Rick, he said, Sumner worked with Dr. Jerry Falwell for years. He said, one of the things that uh, uh, I told Jerry years ago when Jerry was preaching, and I remember Jerry did this every time, every time. At the end of a message, you've heard me do it. I got it from Dr. Falwell. He'd say, uh, at the end, he'd give the gospel. He'd preach to Christians, but he'd give the gospel. If he hadn't preached it in the message, he'd give the gospel. Christ died for your sins. He was buried and he rose again. He'd give the gospel. And Sumner said, you need to give the gospel. And he said, he just started doing it. And he said, Rick, I tell Christians everywhere because he said, I I understand what people mean. But he said, we say share your faith. And I say, no, don't share your faith. Share the gospel. He said, it's not about you. It's about the gospel. So so don't put the focus on you. Put Put the focus on Jesus and your testimony, not your emotions, not how you felt. Share the gospel and on what Jesus has done. Years ago, I was uh, teaching over here in my Sunday school class about how to share the gospel. And I was about a four-week series on how to do this and, and basically how to present it and how to talk to people. We had a, a husband and wife that had come to our church, and they were sitting there and really precious people. And as I came to the end of that series, I finished up. I was putting my notes up in my, in my folder. And I was coming over, getting ready to come over here and preach. I had about 10 minutes. And the wife came up to me, and she stood there, and she was very troubled. And I said, uh, I called her name. And I said, hey, you okay? And here's what she said exactly. She said, Rick, I've been listening carefully for the last four weeks about what you've been talking about winning people to Christ and sharing the gospel. And she said, according to what you have taught, I'm not a Christian. She said, I've never trusted Christ. I've never believed the gospel. I've been religious. 
Oh, this is, see the power of the gospel? And I called her name. I said, would you, would you give me the privilege after church? I will sit down with you if you'll give me. A, you have time. She said, I, w- I would love to do that. I said, I want to talk to you. And sitting right back there where Yvonne is sitting, she waited on me. And I went back there and I talked to her, opened my Bible. And she trusted Christ as her Savior. About every two years, they moved. In fact, they went to another church. Not because of any personal conflict. They just felt like they needed to go to another church. We're still friends. I see them in restaurants and so forth. About every two years, I get a letter from her filled with deep gratitude about helping her to come to Christ. When my mother died back in December, she she wrote a very kind letter filled with gratitude for my mama bringing me to Jesus and to me for helping her to come to Jesus. The power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. What I would like for you to do today is to know that God uses different personalities and different people and different stories. It's the same gospel, but a different background, a different context to bring people to Jesus because your story is unique. I would like for you to take those three pieces of paper and write that out, or maybe on a computer, whatever your preference is, and write out your story of grace and begin to share it. Now, you may have to start into a gospel conversation with someone. Maybe they may ask you about, well, how are you, how do you have such a good attitude about, you know, we haven't, we got to cut and pay because of COVID. You haven't complained. Well, that's a gospel. That's a gospel opening right there. Okay. Well, let me tell you how. And then you give your testimony. Because that's how, isn't it? That's how. And whatever, whatever that Jesus has done for you, whatever good in you is Jesus, and you tell your story, would you do that? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray today as we leave.